Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the second season of our podcast, Deep Convection. This podcast isn't particularly tightly organized. There isn't a story arc to it, but we do put some thought into the guest list, and we try to have at least one or two broad themes that tie the whole season together. So last season, the first one, focused loosely on Mark Cain and people who had connections to him, his former students and colleagues. This season, we're diversifying in a number of ways, and one of these will be that we'll focus more on the international dimension of climate science. In particular, in December 2019, I spent a few weeks in India. I had reasons to go there for my day job as a scientist, but I took the opportunity to record two interviews while there. This was the first of those, recorded in the city of Pune in the state of Maharashtra, where my guest, I'm so happy to say, was Suluchana Gadgil. Suluchana is one of the world's leading experts on the Asian monsoon, and there's no more important topic one can study in our field than that. The monsoon is not just critically important to the economy and health of India and the countries around it, though it certainly is that, but it's also the largest component of the Hadley circulation, which in turn is the largest component of the meridional overturning circulation of the Earth's atmosphere, or what we sometimes call the general circulation. So to a first approximation, the monsoon is the general circulation of our atmosphere, and it's at the root of our understanding of our planet's climate and weather. And over the course of her career, Sulachana Gadgil has been responsible for several dramatic, fundamental advances in how we understand the monsoon, and she explains them in this conversation. The biggest one involves our whole conception of what the monsoon is. The view historically held by virtually the entire field, and one that's still in many textbooks, is that the monsoon results from the thermal contrast between land and sea. As the sun becomes stronger in northern hemisphere summer, the land surface over India heats up more quickly than the ocean around it, and this results in a sort of giant sea breeze circulation, which is the monsoon. That's the traditional view. Sulachana Gadgil has turned the field over by showing, decisively in my view, but that's not true. Instead, the monsoon is fundamentally similar to the tropical rain belts that form over the ocean, the so-called intertropical convergence zones. This insight alters how we think about predicting the monsoon's behavior in the next season to come, and also decades into the future as the planet warms. Sulachana also discovered, in work with the late Dev Sikka 40 years ago, using satellite observations, which were new at that time, that the fluctuations in the monsoon, the so-called active and break periods that occur during the monsoon season, are the consequences of rain bands that start south of the Indian subcontinent and move coherently northward over it and over the adjacent oceans as well on a time scale of weeks. That's a discovery that's been confirmed subsequently many, many times since then and a phenomenon that's been studied by many, many investigators, including myself, but it was originally Sulachana's discovery. In yet another remarkable piece of work, a bit later in her career, Sulachana worked with economists, and with her own son, as she describes, to quantify the impact of year-to-year -year monsoon variations on the Indian economy, a remarkably interdisciplinary piece of work. The conversation covers all these achievements as markers in Sulachana's life, which begins in Pune, her early education there, her PhD in the USA then at Harvard with Alan Robinson and the start of her long working relationship with Jewel Charney at MIT, and her return to India 
where she had a long career as a faculty member at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore before returning to Pune, which is where we did the interview at the Indian Institute of Tropical Meteorology, upon her retirement, though retirement doesn't seem to accurately describe her state as Sulachana remains very active. In fact, during the visit when we did the interview, there was a small workshop at IITM on the monsoon with scientists from all over India and a couple from outside, and Sulachana both organized this and ran it. She set the intellectual agenda and she asked all the most penetrating questions. The sheer force of Sulachana's personality was in evidence there, and I think you'll be able to hear it quite clearly in this conversation as well. So it was an honor and a pleasure to be able to talk with her, and I'm so happy to share with you this interview with Sulachana Gadgil. So let's start with your biography. Where are you from, Sulachana? I am from Pune, where we are sitting now. Oh, originally from yes, Pune? Yes, I'm originally from Pune. Okay. I was born here in 1944. Wow. Yeah, long time back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I come from a family uh, who has been very close to freedom fighters. Freedom fighters? From, yeah. You mean from, because the, from I was, colonial times? From colonial times. I was born before we got our freedom. Yes. Three years before. <laughs> but uh, uh, so uh, there has been a culture of, uh, you know, patriotism in my family. My yeah. grandfather was a doctor. Uh, who actually even treated Mahatma Gandhi when he was in Eroda jail here. Wow. And my father was also a doctor. And we are four sisters. Mm. And in our, our time, you know, Pune was one of the first places to have women's liberation. And this so? was brought, out by, brought about by men fighting for women's liberation. Really? Yes. And we had the... First lady who started a school for girls and so on, our university is named after her, Savitri Bhai Phule. That was more than 100 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So we have had in Pune a culture where certainly in our house, you know, nobody thought of treating us as inferior children, you know, because yeah. we were females. Ah. And uh, there was no question of any taboos. I was interested in mathematics and mathematics is what I took. Yeah. Uh, two of my sisters are doctors, yeah. and one of them did commerce. Yeah. And uh, so we had this spirit of liberated uh, feminist, this thing, without any fights for it, yeah. and which was very nice. And so I got educated in Pune, and I went to Ferguson College, which again has a lot of history. That's here in, in Pune? Here in Pune, yeah. And uh, so a lot of our original freedom fighters also studied and taught in Ferguson College. Yeah. So that has a big history as well. And uh, in Ferguson College, it so happened that uh, I was in the mathematics stream and uh, there was a boy doing biology mm. who had seen me, but we had not met. In those days, you know, we didn't interact with uh, boys. Mm. You know, girls had separate group, boys had separate group. Right. And your feminist family didn't change that. Not really. I was not a feminist, and I still am not. Okay? I, see. I, I mean, it's okay. I, well, I it's just don't consider females as unequal to males in any way. Okay. Some people would call that feminism. Well, yeah, could be. <laughs> but I don't think it is. Okay. Because it is in the same sense that I don't believe that a human being of another caste 
is inferior to a human being of so-called upper caste. Yeah. So it is that kind of equality. Yes. Uh, social equality, I think. Yeah. Uh, rather than you know fighting for women's rights, but that's okay. Yeah. In any event, so it so happened that I j- took science. Once you join science, then after two years. Then you decide whether you want the engineering and mathematics stream or you want the medical and the biology stream. So for BSc, I took physics, mathematics and chemistry. I see. Now, uh, it so happened that I got married to somebody who happened to be in the same college as me uh-huh. and who had seen me around. Okay, his family is also very well known in Pune. Uh-huh. His father was a very great economist uh-huh. and uh, in fact built one of the major institutes here, Gokhale yes. Institute of Economics and Politics. And he, he had studied in Cambridge uh-huh. and his older son had gone to Cambridge uh-huh. and got engaged to a British girl. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, it so happened that the younger son was very much interested in biology because he was fascinated by nature around him and so on. Yes. And uh, so he had joined biology. And uh, he had done B.Sc. in biology and went to Bombay to do M.Sc. Also uh-huh. in marine biology then. So he's doing his M.Sc. and he, you're still doing your bachelor's at this time? No, no. Or you no. had finished? I had finished. I was doing my M.Sc. in Pune oh, University. Okay. And he had gone to Bombay. And then he told his parents that he's planning to go to U.S. for graduate studies after his M.Sc. Uh-huh. So his mother said, that's all very well, but I don't want another white daughter-in-law. <laughs> so, if you want to go, you please get married and go. <laughs> Which is hilarious. But uh, that's exactly how it happened. Uh-huh. Now, he was always interested in marrying somebody who was interested in science. Yes. And he knew because we were in college together that I did very well in yeah. science and so on. And I was probably the one who would like to continue my career in science. So wait, so he, so, so uh, first of all, this is your current husband we're talking about now. Yes, still. current, current has been for 54 <laughs> years. 50, wow. But so he must have come from a family with similar ideals to yours, that he was choosing a wife based on her interest in science and not, not yeah. some other uh, criteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it, they come from a very liberal family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, and the fact that, you know, his mother came to our house. Yeah. To, with the proposal itself was very unusual in that era. You mean not the father? Not the other way around. Generally, uh. the bridegroom's oh, I people see. don't go to the bride's place. I see, I they see. They send words saying, you know, he's interested in you, you come with the proposal kind of thing. But she was a very uh, modern lady, uh-huh. my mother-in-law. And uh, so he said that, look, I will not look for girls and so on the traditional way. But if this girl is willing to marry me, I will marry and go. <laughs> uh-huh. And you didn't know each other. You just seen each other from a distance. Yeah. No, he had seen me. because See, the proportion of girls was smaller than proportion of boys in the college. Right. And uh, see, we had a very wonderful college with a huge campus and a hill uh-huh. within the campus. Uh-huh. And uh, with uh, old buildings with huge French windows. Uh-huh. And there were some classes which used to bore me. Uh-huh. So in those classes, I would sit near the window uh-huh. and after giving my attendance, jump out. Okay, it was very easy. <laughs> jump out and then we all girls would go and play table tennis or go up the hill. And the or teacher something. doesn't say anything, seeing you jumping out the window? They wouldn't see us, you see. Okay. We were careful. 
But, you know, it was very convenient. And big class, more than 100 people. Oh, I see. Where will they notice one girl has slipped out see, from somewhere? <laughs> so, so, he had seen me jumping out of the window. <laughs> so, which also he actually liked. Okay. He said, this girl has some life in her. <laughs> you know? That's, after all, you should do such things in college. Sure. So, with all that, he just decided that it was, uh, you know, I yeah. was the right uh, bride for him. Right. And uh, he, when he talked to his father, interestingly enough, his father knew my grandfather. Oh. And he said, oh, Dr. V.D. Fatak's granddaughter. V.D. Fatak was a very shrewd man and a great man. Huh? Uh -huh. He was the freedom fighter. Uh -huh. so it would be an honor to have his granddaughter as my daughter-in-law. Okay. So uh, it all fitted. And so she came to our house and the next time he came from Bombay, mm. he and his father came to our house. Mm. <laughs> and that's when we met for the first time. Right. And, and you were okay with this plan to marry this guy and go course, to the US? Of course. Because I wanted to study also further. Yes. But, uh, you know, I had not even thought through anything. Yeah. Uh, Madhav, my husband, he had thought through his future. Yeah. And he had decided that he'll go there. Yeah. And so we applied together to several universities. Uh -huh. See, we were in, still in the second year of MSc. Yeah. So we applied together. Yeah. And two universities gave both of us admissions. Uh -huh. One was Harvard. Uh -huh. And the other was University of British Columbia. <laughs> oh, those are pretty good. Yeah. Did some place turn so you down? In some places, uh, I got. In some places, he got. Oh, I see. But we wanted to see where both of us would get. Yeah. And so there was no question, of and course. And you, your field was? Applied mathematics. Applied math, okay. And his was biology. Yes. Marine biology then. Yes. I've been told that he's a famous ecologist. He is. Yes. Uh, and but to you, to me, you're the more famous one. But <laughs> You're biased because I'm in your field. Yes, of course. Yeah. So we applied together and we got, and we got married in June uh -huh. and we left for U.S. in September. Okay. And we had the most wonderful time as graduate students. So, we, so when did you get to Harvard? What year? If you 65, 65. September 65. Okay, all right. And uh, we had the most wonderful time as graduate students there. I mean, Harvard is a fantastic place. I don't yes. have to tell you that. Yes. And uh, I got a very good guide. Yeah. Uh, because, you see, because he was in marine biology, yeah. and I had not quite decided what I'll apply my mathematics to. Yeah. I didn't want to be a pure mathematician. Yes. So I applied to physical oceanography, uh -huh. thinking, trying to find out what it was. You mean even in your application, you said physical oceanography? Yeah. Okay. Somehow you knew that that's a relevant area of applied math. I suppose. Had you been exposed to it here at all? No, no, no. Okay. I said modeling of the ocean, why not? I have to do some mathematical modeling. That but how did you even know it's a thing that people do? I mean, have you read books about <laughs> it or something? I mean, it I wasn't don't. a big field in those days. No. Just because he did marine biology. I see. Okay. Uh, that was the, okay. He was That's doing the marine biology. Oh, so yeah, I see. And I decided, okay, well, I'll look at the oceans. And <clears throat> so I happened to have a guide called A.R. Robinson, Alan Robinson. Yes, yes. You've heard of him. Of course. Yeah. Uh, who was very good. Yeah. And very good for me. Yeah. Huh? Because, uh, see, first of all, he did not believe in spoon feeding. He never rushed us to finish mm. our thesis, although he also had to depend on grants. Yeah. And uh, he actually asked me to work on Gulf Stream meanders. 
which I did work with him on. But in the middle, I realized that an interesting problem was structure of a jet in a rotating system. You know, there is a big theory of jets in fluid dynamics. See, jets are very interesting phenomena because they are concentrated flows which go free. Yeah. And we have jets in rotating fluids. These yes. are the currents like Gulfstream and so on. Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting to understand the dynamics. And generally it is done by looking at similarity theory and so on. Yeah. So I got interested. So on my own, I did some work on structure of jets in rotating fluids. Yeah. Uh, Meaning you didn't discuss with Robinson much? Of course I discussed. But, you know, it was a problem I had set myself and I did it. Yeah. And it came as a paper in JFM afterwards. So that uh, was nice. What, what year? I should look it up. <laughs> Maybe 70, 70. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I may have even. And were there, I mean, did you have courses in relevant things at Harvard or not? Harvard was great. But what happened fortunately was that Charney came over from MIT uh -huh. for a sabbatical ah. in my first year spring term. He took a sabbatical just down the street at Harvard. Unbelievable. <laughs> and so I got to know him and I got to experience Charney. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I was yeah. a fresh graduate student, yeah. not exposed to any So this was early in your time? Very early, mm. first year. The first year. And you know, the way he would lecture, yeah. it is unbelievable. It was like poetry, okay? It's, everybody says he was a terrible teacher, but that... He, I don't think he would, could have ever taught a syllabus, <laughs> yeah, you know? Right, right. In that sense, you can say that. But he conveyed to us yeah. You know how exciting it is and the tenderness of the whole thing. And he would quote poems in class. Really? One I remember is by Louis Carroll, your old father William, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so on. And it was an experience. As I say, I don't think I understood in terms of science much uh. of what he said. Uh. But later on things come back. When you hear somebody like him in that situation. Uh -huh. Later on, when you know a little more background, then uh -huh. what he said begins to make sense. Uh -huh. So I was very fortunate in having him there. Yeah. And uh, that's how I got to know him. Yeah. And the other thing I benefited at Harvard was that because my husband was in biology, mm. and he was always interested in modeling. Mm. But here in India, if you do biology, you are not allowed to do mathematics. There are rigid comp compartments, so really? to speak. Yes. Still now? Uh, now I think they're a bit better, but I don't know. Mm. So he had not been exposed to enough mathematics. Now he took courses at Harvard in basic statistics also. Yeah. But then there are very great books by, for example, by Ronald Fisher mm -hmm. on uh, evolutionary biology, yeah. the mathematics of it. Okay. And we read that together oh. because there's no way he could figure out <laughs> I see. what was in future. So you're helping him with his work. So yeah. I got educated in evolutionary biology. Wow. So I used to go for those seminars also. Wow. And uh, so then the question, we had decided that once we finish our education, we are going to come back to India. Right. And, what, but, and, and was that just obvious to both of you or you or did you have to think about it? I think we both had decided that, right? That's why I told you a little bit about uh, our family background. Yes. You know, uh, my fa I come from a family of freedom fighters and all this. Yes. And uh, mother's father also worked, first got his degree in Cambridge, yeah. but came back and worked in India all his life yeah. on cooperative. So you had movement. a patriotic feeling. I mean, you weren't tempted to stay in the States and have a career there. 
I, I guess we had made up our mind that we are coming back. Okay. okay? Yeah. We had thoroughly enjoyed our stay in states. Yeah. Uh, no question about that. Yeah. So I finished in 1970. Yeah. And then. I got it in my head that so far I've been doing oceanographic modeling. Yes. But I really want to work on the monsoon. Because that's the big deal in India. That's the big deal and I knew it was a big course, deal. Yeah. That it was an interesting system. So see, uh, see, I joined IITM then in 1970 as a... We put should say India Institute for Tropical Meteorology, where yeah. we are sitting right now. Yes. <laughs> you know, its director, when I joined... He had just resigned was the great Ananta Krishnan, uh -huh. who really knew all about the monsoon system. Yes, a very great scholar. Yes, and in any event, so yes. when and, and I mean the the history of the monsoon science. I mean Walker was here, right? It wasn't yeah. Walker's office was over there in that is in IMD in IMD building. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, uh -huh. there again, you know, my luck has always been good. Uh -huh. I shared my <laughs> office with Sikha and Ramanathan. I see. And I started asking him questions about the monsoon. There must have been almost no women working in this, these institutions. Is that correct? I mean, there's very few even now, it seems to me. No, there then, are quite a few women even now. They're there not are. majority, but substantive fraction of IITM scientists are women. And what about back then? I suppose there weren't too many women. But there but was you, no... But you, you were thinking about it like you don't... It, you didn't even think about that. You didn't no, notice anything. No, no. I see. I... That's what I have said. Yes. I've always been a scientist who happens to be a woman. Yeah, yeah. I understand that's your yeah. view, but the institution might see institution it differently. Institution-wise also, they only looked at qualifications. They were very good about that. No problem. Okay. No problem whatsoever. Good. See, problems may have been in some other classes, but for the educated class which we move about in. I see. Of scientists. I see. There isn't that kind of feeling that women are inferior. I by see. no okay. means. Right. So I had a... Good time. Uh, so then I said I will join IITM first as a pool officer mm -hmm. in the hope that they will eventually absorb me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and Madhav also joined another institute in Pune. Just before we came, Madhav's father passed away. Mm. But Madhav's mother was very much alive mm. and here. So to begin with, for searching jobs, it was natural for us to come to Pune mm. and start. And IITM to me always seemed like a good place to join. Sure. Then it so happened that Sikha told me one day that he ran into Professor Dhawan. Now, Professor Dhawan is one of the big science names in our country. Yeah. He was the director of Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore. Uh -huh. Okay. And he is an, was an aeronautics person. Uh -huh. And he was always interested in monsoon as a fluid dynamics problem. Yes. Right? With his fluid dynamics yes. background. And he always wanted to hire good scientists in the atmospheric and oceanic sciences uh -huh. for the institute. Uh -huh. Because he wanted to build a group there. But there was none yet at that time? He had managed to hire only one person called Shankar Rao. Uh -huh. But he was much too much of a traditional meteorologist. So around him, the group could not grow. Traditional meteorologist meaning he's not doing geophysical fluid dynamics and these kind ah, of things? Correct. It's more empirical or...? No, he did some kind of modeling also. Uh. But you know, modelers in meteorology often don't do the dynamics part so much. Okay. Uh, he was okay. Yeah. So Sikha told me that I should apply. Yeah. Huh. And uh, he had heard about it from P.K. Das, who was the director general of meteorology, that Dhawan was looking for something. Mm -hmm. 
So I applied to Professor Dhawan with my bio data. Mm-hmm. And I said I would definitely be interested in joining IISC, mm-hmm. provided my husband also gets a position. <laughs> I see, okay. And included his bio data. Good negotiating, yeah. Interestingly enough, they invited both of us. Yeah. And just then, Institute had established a center called Center for Theoretical Studies. Uh-huh. And in the charter of that center was the idea that they would like to hire scientists who do theoretical work in all fields, mm-hmm. biology, atmospheric science, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay, Theoretical studies. And so they were looking for people. Madhav had also done theoretical work in modeling of the biological system. And so they were looking for people like us. Yes. So we went there. Uh, we went to Bangalore, gave talks, uh-huh. and we were both offered jobs uh-huh. at the Center for Theoretical Studies. Very good. And when is this? 70, early 70s? 72. So in 1972, you go to Bangalore. 1972, we came for the interview. Oh, I see. Okay. And we had decided we'll start a family once we come to India. Mm-hmm. And we did. Mm-hmm. My daughter was born in 72. In Pune still? In Pune. Mm. And meanwhile, we got this job. Mm-hmm. So in 73, we joined IISC. Mm-hmm. And lived happily ever after till 2016, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were very happy to be in IISC. Yeah. Because uh, we had a group of scientists in the Center for Theoretical Studies who were very bright, yeah. working in different branches. Yeah. Biology, particle physics, all kinds of things. Yes. And we had full freedom to do exactly what we wanted. Yeah. So I continued <clears throat> to come to Pune, work with Sikha, yeah. learn about the monsoon, yeah. and uh, continued my work. I also found a group in Bangalore yeah. who were very interested in this, and that is led by Professor Narsimha, uh-huh. who is another aeronautics person, uh-huh. who is actually a student of uh, Professor Dhawan. Uh-huh. He was interested in monsoon, and he had a group of active fluid dynamicists. Mm-hmm. And they started taking interest. Yeah. So, in fact, I would lecture to them on fluid dynamics of the monsoon and things yes. like that. So, I had some links yeah. with some scientists there. And, and let me, so here in IITM, the, there was, of course, the IMD was doing operational predict. I mean, they were already, yeah. already doing seasonal forecasts and things no, like no. that? No, no. No, not yet. No. But there, in but, some sense... Because Blanford did the first seasonal forecast using snow cover, remember, in 1880s. So they were doing some forecast even then. I mean, so there was operation here, but you had no direct connection to that. You were just, but you were talking to them because... Talking not so much to IMD as much as to IITM, Sikha. Yeah, but they were connected to the operations also, no? No, no, they were working on the system. I see. Sikha was working on the monsoon system. So you didn't feel any compulsion to do, do applied work, is what I'm asking. I mean, you were working on the monsoon because it's a big problem for India, but you didn't feel that you had to do prediction or to... Nothing. I found it a very interesting system. Okay, good. And so I worked on it. Yeah. And I worked on various things and learned a lot about the monsoon mm. in collaboration with Sikha. Yeah. So at that point, the kind of studies I did involved actually looking at data and trying to understand the system. And so at that time, what, what was the data? You had stations, radio sounds, and what was the data? Yes, we had stations, we had radio sounds, 
and we had beautiful weather charts uh-huh. because the IMD had many artistic people, you know, employed to draw I beautiful. See. So you got charts. the charts from them, and we had to go to IMD, which was next door, yeah, and sit there and look at weather charts. Next door when you're in Pune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to come and when I from... came to Pune, and Sikha would come to IISC. Yeah. So we would alternate. Yeah. And we went on working on so many things. Yeah. The first thing we worked on was to what extent is the vorticity above the boundary layer related to rainfall, for right. example, okay. as you can imagine. Yes. And uh, so, you know, the dominant component is the shear vorticity. Mm-hmm. So we looked at daily variation of shear vorticity mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And then I also had worked on, uh, you know, Gulf Stream meanders Yes. There is a theory of topographic influence. Yes. So I knew something about that. Yes. So I did some work on topographic influence on the monsoon. Thinking about the Himalayas or the Ghats or what? No, actually Ghats. Okay. And because when you see the charts, you see that the westerlies cross the Ghats. Yes. And over the bay, there is a, uh, you know, cyclonic circulation. Yes. Generated. And we wondered whether that was because of the flow over the ghats. Uh-huh. And so we did a orographic uh, influence on the monsoon, simple yeah. models. Yeah. And the other thing about our center was, although we had no students and so on, mm-hmm. we had a big visitors fund. Ah. So we could invite a lot of people from a lot of places. I see. So I used to invite a lot of people from IITM, IMD and so on to give talks. What about international? Did you feel connected to international community? Did you ever go to meetings overseas or anything like that? Or did you see, stay in touch with Charney and these people? I did partly because, I'll tell you what happened. I didn't quite stay in touch. Those days it was not so easy to stay in right. touch. Right, no email. You had to write letters. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, after all, Chani is such a busy man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was a junior scientist. Yeah, yeah. So, but what happened was, I think it was in 69 or, no, no, 70 something or the other, that... Uh, IIT Delhi organized an international conference on monsoon. Uh-huh. And to that, Charni came. Uh-huh. And Eukhine Akalne, who was also my friend from MIT days. So you guys were there at the same time as Eugenia? You, okay, yeah. yeah. We have been thick friends from then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we were few of the women scientists. Yes, there. yes. And so that, Charni came for that. Yeah. And we invited him to Bangalore also. Yeah. And I distinctly remember that at that meeting, of course, I talked only on influence of orography, which uh-huh. is a paper that came in page of, you know, on the peninsular yes. thing and Bay of Bengal and so on. I remember Charney telling me even then that what I should be doing is looking at satellite pictures. Which were very new in this time. This very is what, new. late 70s, mid very 70s? Very new, very yeah. new, mid yeah. 70s. Yeah. Very new. But Sikha was also interested in satellite meteorology yeah. because, in fact, he was deputed at some point under some Indo-US thing to US to learn satellite meteorology. Okay. So he knew. And he had these NOAA booklets which give satellite imagery. Yes. Okay? From 70s onwards. Yes. And he had preserved them. Yes. And he and I started working on them. Mm. I think the instigation came from Charney. Mm. Because he said, if you want to understand the monsoon, you have to look at the satellite. Right. There are so many people who have stories like this, that Charney just made some remark, or you should do something, and then a whole area starts from that. See, that is the difference between visionary people like him (laughs) and the rest of the mortals like us. 
But people listened. I mean, he would make these suggestions and people would do the thing and then they would... Because he was unique in really a deep understanding of the system. Yeah. You know, Charney knew the data extremely well. Yeah. He was not just a modeler or a GFD man. Yeah. Far from it. Yes. So he made that comment and we, that set us on the path. Yeah. And then we started looking at satellite imagery. Yeah. And from then on, I really started getting results, new results on the monsoon. Right. Did you, I try to remember, did you and Sika do one of those papers like where you cut out the strips and make Havmuller plots? Did you yes. do one of the, yeah. uh, we were one of the first to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that Look, is seeing the northward propagation, is that, yeah, okay, I know We this discovered the northward propagation. Yes, yes. Is that, In 19, that paper, late, 1980. 1980, yeah, okay. I know that one. Yes. We had a tough time getting the paper, uh, you know, published. Really? Very tough time. So nobody knew about northward propagation before that, even in India? No. See, we knew about one northward propagation, that is during the onset phase. Yes. That the onset first well, occurs sure, over Kerala and comes north. Cycle, but yeah. Nobody knew that they are regular feature. The active and break, nobody noticed that they moved north? Active and break, they knew. But over India. See, that you But I mean, they didn't notice that when there's an active and break in one latitude, then, then it appears further north later? They didn't notice that? Okay. That came this only from satellite. Yeah. Only from satellite. Mm. And only from diligent looking at daily satellite imagery. Yeah. And Sika said, we'll now note latitude. And I, he used to read out and I used to note down yeah. the, at every longitude yeah. what, where the band was. Did you see the, had you seen this stuff like in the late 60s to early 70s was when there were some papers like by Dick Reed and these kind of people looking at doing the same thing for over Easterly. the Pacific, the Easterly. Easterly waves. So you had seen those? No. No. You had the same idea just independently to cut out, to make the Hovmuller plots and... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So we decided that we will look at what this band does. Mm. And when you look at the cloud band, it is very clear mm. that it's a zonal band. Yes. It stretches over the ocean, for example, all the way, 70, 80, 90 east. In fact, they're stronger over the ocean. Yeah, and it land. is seen as a coherent east-west band. Yeah, yeah. So when we want to look at its changes, it yeah. is very logical that at critical longitudes, yeah. you look at the, where, the lat where the band is in terms of latitude. Yeah. So that's what we did. Yeah. And we did, did that for five years, huh? five years five data. Five years. And we find year after year, uh -huh. whether it is a drought or a good monsoon, uh -huh. these bands appear. Uh -huh. Okay, in fact, nowadays people keep on calling it 40-day mode, but actually things are more complex. Yes, it's not. The interval yeah. between two propagations is about two to six weeks. Yeah. And we also calculated the rate of propagation. Yeah. We did all that. Yes. And by then, Chani's ITCG theory had come out, 1971. Were you aware of Madden and Julian's work too? Huh. No, that was also... Unknown. I was aware of... Uh, no, I, we were not at all aware of Madden and Julian. Yeah. Had we been aware, we would have linked the two. Yeah. Unfortunately, we were not aware, but nor were many other people. No, I know. That's what, they, that that's what they say, that nobody paid attention to their... No. And, so, when they did and it, in yeah. India, it's more difficult. You don't have people coming and visiting and giving yeah, seminars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but even in the doing. States, it wasn't that much... Uh, it didn't so get we that had much. no clue about that. Yeah. But then itself, it was bugging us. What is the basic system responsible for the monsoon? And what we could show is that the distinguishing attributes of ITCG as Charney had listed them. Mm -hmm. in the 69 and 70 papers mm. and also in the book chapter in the 
in the book edited by Morel, Planetary Fluid Dynamics. Mm-hmm. Charni wrote a big chapter uh-huh. in that, several lectures. Uh-huh. And uh, see, he had very clearly said that you will have to have cyclonic vorticity above the boundary layer, strong convergence in the boundary layer, right? right? Frictional convergence. Ascent throughout the troposphere yeah. and moist convection. Yeah. And we showed in that paper of Sikha Gadgir. Yeah. Now, empirically, Sikha knew yeah. that there is no point in looking at 850 millibar, which is just above the boundary layer. Yeah. If you are interested in moist convection, you have to look higher at 700 millibar. Right. Why? Because heat loads extend till 850 millibar. Oh, I see. Okay. And we heat loads are not monsoon. Yes, yes. Yeah. And he had uh, showed me papers in which it had been shown yeah. that the non-orographic rainfall of monsoon yeah. huh, is around that 700 millibar yeah. trough. So just to explain a little bit, because we might have a listener who's not an expert at some point. So the heat low is what you have before the monsoon, actually. You have a strong heat low over the land, right? But and during the monsoon also, we have a heat low over the western part of okay, India, yeah. northwest part. Okay. That is still a heat low. Right. So you it want to distinguish so. that from It the... is a permanent feature. Right. So if you draw a surface trough in the monsoon, yeah. it will have heat low right. sitting next to what we now call a dynamic low. Right. But the distinction is that the heat low occurs in the absence of rain. I mean, it, it's there even in dry conditions. Yeah, but there no rain occurs. That's what I'm saying. So you wanted to make the distinction. You wanted, you wanted to look at the level where you can see the rain flow belt. associated with the rain. Rain belt. And you have to look higher than 850 yeah. millibars. So yeah. we showed... The, we had also the location of the 700 millibar mm. from the weather maps. Yeah. And we showed that if we look at the axis of what we call the maximum cloudiness zone from satellite yeah. and 700 millibar trough, there is a close correspondence between them when they are on land. Yeah. So that seemed to us, therefore, we concluded that what we have is an ITCG on land. Right. Okay. And, and that was a radical view at that time, wasn't it? It was a radical view. It was not accepted for years and years. And you think that's why you had trouble with reviewers? No, no. That is because the vast majority of reviewers are first of all prejudiced against papers from India. Really? Absolutely. Wait, this is in which Even journal? Today. Which journal? Oh, we tried all kinds. Finally, it got published in Monthly Weather Review, where we had the most trouble from an Indian settled in the U.S. <laughs> this was the international, uh, Western prejudice. I think so. Yeah. And also... They did, did you have trouble publishing your other papers just as much? I still have till today. I see. Uh, so it wasn't special to this paper. It was something no, no, that happened no. all the time. Okay. Yes, it happens all the time. Yeah. And particularly because we were talking about a phenomena which had not been written up about. Yeah. How can Indians discover anything? Really? Uh, that was the attitude. Yeah. Uh, they didn't believe. And finally, our paper got published after Yasunari... Yeah. Found the same thing and published it. Ah. But we had found it. I see. Okay. And they, they said, oh, Japanese guy has it. That means there must be something to it. Oh, okay. And sorry. this is not what we came to know, but it's all right. Took a long time. Yeah. And it got published. Right. But so that's that the 1981. Paper, 1980. So you had done the work a few years before, but it took a while to... Yeah, it took probably a year or so to publish. Okay. But... Uh, Anyway, we were very happy with that paper. And the more I look at it, the more I find that we had addressed so many questions in that paper. Yeah. What is the variability of the monsoon? What is the nature of the system? The fact that there are two 
tropical convergence zones, mm-hmm. one on the land, one on the ocean, and both compete with one another. At the same time, the continental one, for it, the lifeline is the oceanic one yes. because by northward propagations it sustains the continent. Right. So let's just so let's just take a step back here. So the you know my work, my understanding of the monsoon has been from the beginning so much influenced by your work that I sometimes don't even you know understand what came before. But but I think at that time and even today, if you read textbooks, the idea of the monsoon is that it's the giant sea breeze that it's there because the land is hotter than the ocean, and so the convection forms over land. And by just saying it's the ITCZ, which is intertropical convergence zone, by saying it's that, that's an ocean phenomenon. So what you're really saying, you're really going against the conventional wisdom. Absolutely. In, in other See, words, you're, you're conventional wisdom was that the monsoon is a very special system, yeah, which arises because of land sea contrast. Yes. What we are saying is that the system is not special, yeah. but the fact that it comes over the heated continent is special. Yeah. Okay, its amplitude of seasonal variation is larger yeah. over our longitudes. Yes. But the system is not special. Yeah. And people had never bought it fast. Even today, the climate change lobby, several scientists say that land is going to get hotter mm-hmm. than the ocean, and so the monsoon is going to strengthen. Right. Well, the first part is probably is true. The first part is probably true. Nobody quarrels with that. Yeah. But the point is the implications that they derive are wrong. Yes. So that is why I wrote last year a very detailed paper. Yeah. Is the basic system land sea breeze or ITCZ? Right. And in that I have shot down the land sea breeze hypothesis yes. very systematically. Yes. You're still fighting it because the land sea breeze idea is still alive somehow. I mean, it's... It is alive and people like it because right from here, school, we are taught that. Yeah. Even here. Yeah. So it took a lot of fighting. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, after that, actually, by then I was already settled in uh, IISC, Bangalore. Yeah. And then came another uh, breakthrough in my career, I believe, because of Ed Sarachek. Okay. Huh, it is very interesting. See, Ed Sarachek had organized a meeting along with Gil. In a- Adrian Gill. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. In... Hamburg, there used to be a series of meetings. You remember? No, I, I don't remember. I told, I'm too young. <laughs> no, they continue today. Oh, all right. And um, it was on air-sea interactions in the tropics and so on. Oh, yeah. No, I know, though. It, was the, it became the ENSO people, and they had them in Hawaii and uh, yeah. that kind of stuff. Okay. In Hamburg, but, it was. But on. this was back in 83. Mm-hmm. 83, he had organized a meeting. And in 82... Ed Sarachek wrote to me, saying he wants me to talk on monsoon and the oceans. Yeah. And he says, I know you will reply, saying you have not worked on oceans and the monsoon, but you have one year in which to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Only Ed can do this. <laughs> Therefore, you please do it. Yeah. And that set me on a track. Okay. And I found a person called Joseph in IMD. Yeah, yeah who is very bright and who had actually, from using uh, data from ships of opportunity, consolidated and had an enormous store of SST data over the Indian Sea surface temperature. Yeah. Yes. Sea surface temperature data. From buoys, ships, how did he? Ships. You know, there are ships of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And all the ships send their data to the center here in Pune. Yeah. And that was true even then. 
even then. And IMD was the storehouse of that data. This guy was in IMD. Yeah. And he's extremely curious and interested scientist. Yeah. Very bright person. Yeah. So he had been analyzing that data just to see what the sea surface temperature around India is like. Yeah. What is its variability and yeah. so on. So I talked to him. Yeah. Then the question was, see, ocean and monsoon means you have to first and foremost, because of the northward propagations we know that monsoon variability has to be linked to clouds over the ocean yes obviously there was a link yes now what determines the clouds over the oceans right yes. variability of clouds over the ocean is the question now for that we need data on clouds over the ocean yes now at that time sadler had just published some data this was in the early days of satellite data yeah Sadler had generated a digitized data of satellite. Sadler, the tropical meteorologist who was, ba I can't remember his first name, but he was based in Hawaii, I think. Same, same guy. American guy. Same right? guy, same guy. Yeah. Very imaginative. What yeah. he had done is, he had generated a data by looking at cloud imagery mm. and digitized it, depending on the intensity of the clouds, mm. from 1 to 10. Over, I think, 5 by 5 degree grid. Intensity means infrared temperature or some black body temperature? There was no observations of IR then. Oh, it's all, all visible. All they had was looking at oh. pictures just the way we did. I see. We didn't have any IR data. Some brightness or something in the visible, I don't know. No, you just judge. Yeah. And that's what Sikha taught me. How do you judge deep clouds from shallow oh, okay, clouds? Okay. By looking at images. Yeah. They shouldn't be wispy, <laughs> you know. Wispy yeah. are uh, cirrus. Yeah. Deep clouds have a higher albedo. Yeah, yeah. And so on. But we didn't have any digitized data. Yeah. And you know, Yasunari has used Sadler's data. Mm -hmm. And we became aware of Yasunari's work. Yeah. So I wrote to Yasunari, yeah. saying I want Sadler's data. Yeah. He said, how can I give you somebody else's data? Yeah. Okay. And then for some reason, I wrote to Dennis Moore, who was a graduate student when we were graduate students. Yeah. Back to Harvard's connection. Yeah, yeah. And Dennis Moore simply took a whole tape of Sadler data and mailed it to me. <laughs> you see? And that is how we first look at what is the relationship between clouds over ocean, yeah. tropical ocean, yeah. and our North, North Indian Ocean, which has equatorial Indian Ocean, Arabian Sea, and Bay of Bengal. Yeah. So we had the SST yeah. from IMD, and we had this, from which we found a, made a cloudiness index for the month. Yeah. Saying whenever the clouds are above a certain six or something, yes. we take it as a presence of a deep cloud and things like that. Yeah. And that is how we encountered this threshold of SST. Yeah. See, when we analyze that... I mean, that, the sea surface temperature has to be higher than something to get convection. Yes. Was that a, now everybody knows this. Was this a completely new result at this time? Nobody knew it. I was the first to write it That's up. amazing. And, huh... And we found it from this kind of data. Yeah. And uh, again, they were non-believers. I mean, even in other parts of the ocean, it wasn't known. Only Nowhere. This was found for the first time in the Indian Ocean. I mean, gray stuff Listen, on hurricanes was sort that of... That is different. Yeah. See, when they have talk of threshold, that way Parmen had a threshold. Yeah. of SSD of 26. Yes. He says you don't get intensification to cyclones right, that's what I'm unless of. you have, right, which is right. a different story. You're talking I'm about asking for organized convection. Right, over right. Not cyclones. Yeah. Not necessarily cyclones yes. or anything. Yes. 
just organized convection of sufficient intensity. Okay. That had never been done. And were you looking at, I mean, and the climatology or like the variation month to month if the SST month, goes up and down? Month to month variation. So sometimes the SST would go too low and then the convection would stop. Particularly kind of in some regions it will be high. Yeah. See, it, we were only looking at association, okay? Yeah, yeah. Not cause and effect. Right. And all daily data, I mean instantaneous data? Monthly, you, monthly data. Oh, monthly instantaneous data. are out of the question. Yeah, yeah. Because you have to have ships crossing and all that. Yeah, yeah. From that monthly data so monthly had been... And I, but also I think the relationship is much stronger in monthly data. So in a way, yeah. if you were forced to average monthly, that was a and lucky... actually, after I found this, yeah. uh, then I presented it in that meeting in, yeah. Hamburg. in Hamburg. So you went to Hamburg? I went. So there, but you hadn't. So that was that unusual that you went to an international meeting. You said you hadn't left the country much. Yeah, yeah, I had not. But uh, before that, I think in '82 I had visited Krish once. Yeah. So my daughter was then ten, and my son was eight. I see. So I could leave for a short time. I see. I see. Huh? That had been holding you uh, back before. Huh? Yeah. So uh, in between, of course, there was no question of traveling. But my husband always, you know was willing to take care of the kids if I had to go somewhere. Yes. As I said, he's always given priority to my work. Good. So there's been no problem as such. Good. So, uh, so then I went to Hamburg yes. and presented this. Yes. And Ed was happy. Adrian Gill was happy. Yeah. And we submitted a paper on this to Jazz. Yeah. Which bounced. Really? Absolutely bounced. Yeah. And then I submitted it to Gill. I wrote to Gil uh -huh. with a short w version and I submitted it to Nature. Uh -huh. And Gil had been present when I presented this. Uh -huh. And he was convinced that I had something right. Was he an editor of Nature or something? Or? See, but he was a Britisher, great British scientist. Uh -huh. I don't know if he was editor of Nature or whatever. I had submitted it directly to Nature. Yeah. Okay. But he was able to help in some way? or, or? I believe it was his intervention that made it. Nature accept it. Oh, I see. Okay. See, nature also doesn't easily accept papers from foreigners. Right. And particularly when they're first time results. Yeah. So we had said in that paper two things. One is that sea surface temperature has to be above a certain threshold yes. before clouds will occur. Yes. And once the sea surface temperature is above the threshold, yes. it doesn't matter how hot it is. Yes. We had also said that and shown that the correlation between clouds and SSD Yes. Is not there when once SST threshold is crossed. Yeah. So we had made two strong statements. Wow. And both were not known before. Wow. And that got accepted. And it so happened Rasmussen was also at that conference. Yeah. Because remember they were all excited about the El Nino. Yeah. This was in 83. And so Rasmussen knew of this. Yeah. And then he knew of this paper. Yeah. Then Graham and Barnett, uh -huh. after OLR data came, uh-huh. Wrote a paper on all oceans. Yes, I know that. And they had a similar result. Yes. And Rasmussen, when I ran into him several years later, said, you know, they were not willing to quote your result. <laughs> but th this is a fact. Yeah. That they had they were aware of the paper but didn't quote it. And Rasmussen forced them to. Yeah. So the first paragraph. It's of the their basic paper, result that SST and convection are related by a threshold. You have to be yeah, SST, yeah. sea surface temperature higher yeah, than something. Yeah. So it was basically the same thing, but on a large uh, global domain because yes, they had their global satellite Yes, and beautifully data. done because they yeah. had digital data on OLR. Yeah. 
not like our some right, cloudiness right. intensity index and all right. generated by us right. <laughs> privately here. That was not the thing. So it was a very good result of Graham and Barnett and they went much further than us yeah. and showed that actually once SST is above the threshold, yes. what matters is the low level convergence. Right. And they showed up on a plot beautifully that, uh, you know, it's either SST which is suppressing the clouds yeah. or it is lack of convection, convergence. Yeah, but actually I don't like that result so much. I think yours is better because to me the convergence can be a byproduct of convection. I mean, you don't know what's the cause and what's the effect. Whereas the SST That's is not. independent, I think. See, SST is independent, but the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of regions of warm oceans where SST is well above the threshold, where you don't get clouds. Sure. Now, why don't you get clouds there? It's a genuine question, right? Yeah. Why doesn't why don't clouds increase? Because after all, water vapor content of the lower air increases with SST. Right. Obviously. Yes. So why is there this behavior of no dependence on SST beyond the threshold? Right. Well, for the really warm oceans, sometimes they are warm precisely because there's no convection. In other words, the atmosphere is I agree is with you totally. Ocean. I yeah. agree with you totally. So it is an association yeah, yeah, in yeah. which you have a divergence, yeah. no clouds, and therefore they, them getting warmer. Yeah. But I mean, I guess what I'm saying, though, is that if for some reason the convection were to happen, it would generate its own convergence, right? Because you cannot have upward motion without having convergence below it. But the point is, we are not talking of cause and effect, but association. Okay, all right. So what fine. they are saying... Even Graham and Barnett were not talking about cause and effect? No. Okay. They were also talking of association. Okay. To try and understand why some regions don't have clouds, although they are warm. Mm. And that is simply because there is no low-level convergence. Okay. Yeah. And they put it, showed it very nicely, actually. Yeah, right. And after that, I'm so happy to see that people have used better and better indices yeah, yeah. and confirmed our result time and again. Yes, yes. So this was a very big boost for me. Yeah, yeah. The fact that Graham and Barnett wrote this. After that, it has been on a roll. I have always sought to understand deeper and deeper. Yes, yes. And uh, I have gained a lot in the process. Yes. And a lot of good colleagues... Yeah. And then later on, what we could do is we could establish two centers in the institute. Yeah. You won't believe it. Initially, <laughs> so we established two centers that Madhav had his center for ecological sciences. Mm -hmm. And I, along with Professor Narsimha, mm. who, was a, who had a lot of clout with Delhi circles and everything, mm. very brilliant person also. Mm. He was always interested in one zone, in particular boundary layers, atmospheric boundary layers. Yeah. And turbulence. So he, he uh, put in a proposal for Center for Atmospheric Sciences. Mm -hmm. And Madhav has a Center for Ecological Sciences. Yeah. And those two groups have bloomed. So that became established. So you moved from this theoretical center to that thing. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you got students and yeah. education pro, you know, yeah. courses and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So at you became time. a regular professor and at that time. And my God, I had to teach so much then. Really? Uh, because there were very few faculty. So like what we was your... We had to hire a faculty. Yeah. And I would give a course on GFD every year, once uh, slanted towards atmosphere and once slanted towards oceans. Uh -huh. So in one of them, I would talk of ocean currents and everything else. Yeah. Stormel's theories, all that. And in another, the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, no. Then J. Srinivasan, who is a mechanical engineer, yeah. who was at IIT Kanpur. Mm -hmm. He was always interested. He's a radiation man. Uh -huh. So it's natural he would be interested in climate and so on. Yeah. So he joined our, he joined IISC. 
and then we started collaborating mm-hmm. and ravi is our joint student the director here and he he is very good in modeling js in between something interesting happened when we published the sikha gadgir paper and northward propagation my old friend peter webster whom i knew in mit yeah. because he was a student when i was a postdoc he saw this paper of ours yeah and he got very excited because he had just made a model of the monsoon axisymmetric in which north of 18 degrees north is all land right yes no i know this paper yeah and south of it is ocean yeah and lo and behold his model had northward propagation yes 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 and he couldn't believe that it was a real phenomena he had captured <laughs> yeah, yeah so he got really excited about it i bet huh. and then we started collaborating yeah and he gave us his model yeah and that's how the modeling work at cos began I see. Afterwards Ravi developed his own model, but his first work was on Webster model. This is Ravi Nanjandaya who's ah, the director of yes. IITM now. Yes. And um, then you know we were working on theories of northward propagation very naturally. Yeah. And uh, because Webster had his own theory which we did, proved was not right. But I have great admiration for his uh, insight into many things, you yes, know. Yes, and yes. he thinks physics, okay? Yeah. my interaction with modelers and modeling began with peter webster i see i see and that is what you know took root in our center also yeah. and we've had several modelers yeah. after ravi also so we have had a good input because of that yeah and after that you know i have been working on so many things including applications to agriculture yes, you know you, that yes right you so you did a paper showing quantifying how uh how much the monsoon variability affects indian uh, economy yes uh, that was yet another thing oh, yeah. that's not what you mean so what which one are you talking about there are two things i did okay one was uh, and this was relatively recently 2006 we published that one uh-huh. impact of monsoon on gdp and agriculture yes but before that for several years i worked with an ecologist student of madhavs who happens to be a farmer yeah in karnataka yeah and he and i worked together on farming practices and in what way can meteorological information on variability yeah. and prediction can help the farmers in yes. choosing better strategies yes so i have a whole set of papers on that yeah. on choice of sowing window on so many things yeah and i think i learned a great deal yeah and i believe the problem with our agriculture is that while traditional agriculture practices were tuned to the climate variability of the region yeah just by trial and error yeah. you know they know what to sow when this sowing rains occur at a certain time yeah. simply because they have so much experience of that what happened in the 70s all the varieties have changed yeah all the seeds have changed yeah. nobody has any experience and people can use crop models yeah. to generate appropriate strategies which we showed very nicely Yeah. for the case of groundnut uh-huh. how appropriate strategies could be used but i found to my dismay that agricultural scientists were least interested really uh, although when you talk to farmers what is the most important factor impacting your yields they will say climate mm. but agricultural scientists since the green revolution can only think of different varieties and pesticides and fertilizers i see yeah that was there till climate change lobby became 
active. Uh-huh. Now they have jumped into climate change without even worrying about climate variability. Who's they? Oh, you mean agricultural scientists? Ah, because there is money in it. Uh. So I got... I mean, you don't think their concerns are about climate change or are serious? I mean... See, I don't think so. Really? See, a large fraction of scientists, whether in US or here, yeah. you know, would like to work on things which give them plenty of project funds. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a fact. Yes. And uh, these people, when they found a lot of project funds in climate change, they just adopted that yes. without worrying about whether these things are tuned to the climate variability of the region in the first place. Right. First, you have to tailor your strategies to the observed interannual variation. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, to me, goes without saying. Sure. And yeah. only then you take into account the climate change impact. Right. So it's not that there And in fact, yeah. I tell you, CO2 increase is good for the plants. <laughs> it's good for yeah, the plants. But... No, I'm t- this is the fact. So when you look at the impact, you have to look at it whole. You right. must look at it with a proper crop model. Yeah. Look at what the increased temperature is like, what the increased CO2 is like, yeah. and make rational decisions about how to adapt to climate change. Sure. But first adaptation is to climate variability. Sure. Yeah. So we made a big case of this, and we that's when I worked with START and all kinds of things. That's how I got involved with IRI. Yeah. IRI, International Research Institute for Climate and Society at Columbia, which is... Correct. Which didn't have all this climate which society. I can't remember if I met you first there or in Bangalore. I don't remember, but anyway. I think there. Yeah, maybe there. Uh, so that is when, by that time, I knew also a little bit more about the monsoon, and I talked about the monsoon, and that's where I met Mark Kent. Yes, yes. And uh, that was another very, very good thing. Yeah. And uh, then my interaction with the scientists at IRI... Yeah. and so on, yeah. really bloomed. Yeah. And it gave me a great deal of confidence to have somebody like Mark Kane accept our ideas. Yeah. You know, because I'm so used to people rejecting them. Really? <laughs> yeah. You said at the beginning that, you know, be, uh, that being a woman scientist was no, no issue, no problem. But then you described having so much trouble with your reviewers and getting your ideas accepted. You think that wasn't a factor at all? It was only... Only uh, problem with Indian, uh, yeah. being an Indian scientist. Yeah. I think so. In the international community. Yes. Yeah. So within India, you didn't have any problem? Or, or the Indians... Are... As a woman, I never had a problem in India. No, no, but I mean, you don't attribute any of the difficulty you had getting your papers published to that. You think that was not a factor? No. Just being, coming, the science coming from India was a factor? I think so. I see. I think so. Okay. Also, not following the fashionable line. But see, many of the papers I published are original. They're yes. different kind of problems, okay? Yes, yes. They're not the problems that everybody is working on. Right. And that makes it more tough. Right. Okay. Yeah. You, it, see, it seems to me that you have had some, you know, a few big ideas and you kind of really stuck with them over a long time, even if people didn't... Uh... No, see, if I feel I am right, I stick with them. Yeah, yeah. I'm willing to throw them out of the window, no problem. Yeah. If somebody can convince me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not adamant about that. No, but I mean, but the lack of acceptance didn't stop you. No, because I had enough good people yeah. liking what I did. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Whom I respect deeply yeah. have always encouraged me. You see, being a woman, I had decided that... Look, I'm going to work because I enjoy science. Yeah. But I'm not in a rat race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
because I wanted to bring up a children, I wanted to have a family. It was yeah. my choice. Yeah, sure. So I decided that long ago. Yeah. So I've never been in a rat race and I've never had any problem. Yeah, and there's another thing I want to ask you about, which is, you know, when I come to India and I meet scientists here, I'm really struck by how um, on the overwhelming majority of scientists here, it seems to me, are studying the monsoon, the Indian monsoon. Yes. It's a, and you can understand why. It's a very yes. important topic. Yes. But still, I mean, even some other topics that are important to India, like cyclones and other things are studied yes. much less. And I'm wondering, did you ever feel any interest in working on something else? Did you ever think maybe I should study some phenomenon other than the monsoon or something that's outside of India or a different topic? Or? See, the reason is the following. Yeah. That I have not deeply understood the monsoon and its variability. Yeah. I'll give you an example now. Okay. Lately, you know, I have been working on Equino. Yes. Right. That again was something we saw in the system. Okay. See, 2002, we had a very severe drought. Yeah. And no model had predicted it. Mm -hmm. And the, the, then the Director General of Observatories, Kelkar, mm -hmm. asked me to organize a meeting in IISC with all scientists from IMD, IITM, everywhere, to try and understand what had happened. Yeah. And nobody had a clue because it was not a strong El Nino, okay? Right. Before that in 97, see the El Nino monsoon link has been known for a long right. time. So when there's an El Nino, it usually makes a bad monsoon. Bad and, monsoon. and that goes back to Walker in the 19th Walker century. Walker and then revived by Sikha in 80s. Yes, yes. When he showed all this yeah. correspondence, close correspondence in the decadal variation. Mm -hmm. And so that we knew, but 97 strongest El Nino of the century then, we had a normal monsoon. Yeah. Okay. All the models had predicted huge deficit. Yeah. And 2002, which was a weak El Nino, we had a severe drought. Yes. And in that meeting, it was very clear. We had no clue what is happening. Okay. So now we were worried about 2003, simply because there was a history. In 86, there yeah. was not much of an El Nino, but we had a drought. Yeah. And this was followed in 87 by an El Nino and a drought. Right. Uh, okay. So we have had history of these kind of things before. And so we were worried about 2003. And we were looking at satellite pictures day after day. And what we saw was that there is a cloud band very often emanating from the western equatorial Indian Ocean and coming right up to India coming right up to India. Mm -hmm. And this was intriguing, okay? Because we had not seen this in our earlier yeah. thing. And this happened in July 2003 over and over again. Yeah. Now, before this, these people had discovered the so-called Indian Ocean Dipole, which involved a seesaw right. in clouding between Western Equatorial Indian Ocean and Eastern Equatorial. Yes. But more importantly, a seesaw between the sea surface temperatures of the two regions. Yes. One being warm, other being cold. Yeah. So, this was the western region that was showing the cloudy. Eastern region, there was not any clouding yeah. in 2003. Now, one of my former students, Vinay Chandran, who will come for the workshop, yeah. he was working with Yamagata, okay, mm -hmm. at that time as a postdoc. In Japan. In Japan, and he was the one who had worked a lot on the original IOD paper yeah. that came out. So he Indian knew, Ocean Dipole. Yeah. He knew all about Indian Ocean Dipole. Yeah. So I told, this was when Francis had joined me as a student. Yeah. So I told Francis, look, we have to wait for Vinay to come back. 
he will probably be able to tell us the relevance of the link to the equatorial Indian Ocean. Mm. So when I came back and we looked at it, and that is how we started investigating the atmospheric part of this coupled system, mm. which we call the equatorial Indian Ocean Oscillation. Mm. And that is how Francis's thesis came. Yeah. Now, today you ask me, how come I'm not working on any other yeah. phenomena? It is because already we find that last monsoon, yeah. 2019, is totally dominated by this equatorial Indian Ocean Oscillation. Yeah. It is ruling the roost. Right. El Nino has weakened and we also could show that these two modes together explain a large fraction of the variation of the monsoon from year to year. Yeah. All this we have shown in the intervening years. See, ENSO is good because scientists have worked and we have reasonable predictions. Yes, yes. Several months ahead. Yes. Now, what about Equino? Yes. Because if we had that, yes. then we would be in business for the monsoon. Right. Without that, we are not. Yeah. Now, the questions are... Mm. Do we understand the physics yeah. of the equino? And then I remembered what people did for ENSO. Yeah. How they unraveled the physics with new observations, analysis from buoys, other things, and atmospheric models forced by real ocean temperature, and ocean models forced by real atmosphere, right. and so on and so forth. Now, it's only then that everything got unraveled. Yeah. Now, we have to do the same thing here. Yeah. And as, in fact, it was Mark Kane who pointed out that, remember, your atmospheric component is not so tightly coupled to the ocean. Right. That is one difference. The ocean dynamics is weak, weaker here. Second difference yeah. is that our SSTs tend to be above the threshold all the time. Right, yes. Whereas the critical region for El Nino Central Pacific, right. is, the mean temperature is around the threshold. Right. So small anomaly makes the difference between yes. going below the threshold to above the threshold. Right. So similar an analysis will not hold here. Yeah. It's a new phenomena. Yes. And now at this juncture, I'm all excited about unraveling that phenomena. Yeah. Okay. And I think, again, people have been carried away by what is fashionable. Yeah. That is why I worked so hard with Sikha yeah. to learn about the system. And it has paid rich dividends to me. Of course, yeah. Because I have found out new things about it. Yeah. And in the process, I'm amazed. Now, even this, uh, you mentioned earlier two things. I have to digress a bit. Please. You mentioned about work done with agricultural yeah. Things. And as I said, it was a success story and it was very well recognized internationally. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Start and everybody else, including JSC, I have given a talk on that, yes. WCRP. Yes. It was very much appreciated. That's how I got involved with IRI. Yeah. But there was no effort at all to actually use the work right. we had done, which was meant for applications. Yeah. Okay. But in the beginning, when you started, were you thinking about these applied aspects? Yes. No, not in the beginning. Yeah. But it was always on the back of my mind. And I that's see. why I inquired. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I made contacts with IKRISAT. Yeah. Because in the first part of every paper, we say, monsoon prediction is critical for an agricultural right. country. So, like I mean, us. you did have in the beginning but some feeling that this is important for the country. Of course. Yes. And that's why I chased it. Yeah, yeah, As yeah. a scientist. Yes. I went to IKRISAT. I learned from them. Yeah. I asked them what they wanted. Yeah. They said they wanted some uh, some way by which they could recommend practices to a larger region. Yeah. So I did for them clustering of Indian rainfall stations yeah. and such things. Farmers themselves posed to us yes. the problems they had. Okay. But the thirst for knowing the system 
Okay. Was what drove me. So it was a happy, happy coincidence of the two. It is because it was important that I chose the field. Yes. It is true. Yes. But having seen the system, yeah, yeah, I was totally enthralled. Yeah. By how complex it was, yeah. and yet something could be learned from it. Yes. You know. Yes. And so with Sikha and so on, the kind of work we did. Yes. Somehow we were always very excited about learning more and more about the system. Yes. And as more and more technology became available, yes. You know, we could go all the way from satellite images to OLR analysis. Yes. All kinds of things. Yes. So that is how it progressed. But I gave up working on applied things for farmers, farmer strategies. Even today, I can do virtual thing because. There is no hope that they will be applied, and there is no point in spending my time and energy, right. which was almost five years of active life, uh, interacting with farmers, interacting with them, right. telling them what we feel, asking if their hypothesis is, uh, all kinds of things. It, uh, then I said, this is useless because unless some agricultural scientist takes it up yeah. and builds it, there is no point in I doing see. these kind of studies. I see. So right? it's very frustrating. So I said, but just then came 2002 drought and 2003 this uh, discovery that Equino is a very important equatorial Indian Ocean oscillation. Yes, it's very important for the monsoon, and that suddenly gave a different turn to my research. Yeah. So I said, forget that. But it still was nagging me that people know, say this is the impact of a drought only in newspapers. Nobody had assessed what is the impact of a drought uh -huh. on Indian agriculture. There was not a single paper really? on it. Not a single paper. But everybody just assumes it has a big impact. I mean, in the sense that that's, that's was, the that, point. That was conventional wisdom. And GDP also. Yeah. You'll see in newspapers, last year's drought had this impact on GDP. I chased all the economists in the country yeah. from all the institutions because I wanted somebody to have done the quant quantitative assessment. Right. Nobody had done it. Yeah, and I can't remember the number you came up with, but it's yeah. that every drought has an impact of two to five percent of GDP, right. and that impact has remained the same from 1950s until now. But my my impression is that, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that that number, I mean, naively, of course, two to five percent of the Indian economy of Indian GDP it's is a huge. lot of money. But it still sounds like a small number. But my my understanding is that the real impact on people is much larger than that because the farmers are, you know, uh, depending on a low, small uh, income. So that so for them, the human impact is much bigger. I mean, the GDP is reflecting all these other industries. Agree. That, yeah. I completely agree. But most interesting thing we found in the paper, which was unexpected, was that the farmers are doing as well as the technology allows in low rainfall years because nobody can <laughs> give a good yield in low rainfall yeah. years, even if you put pesticides, fertilizers, whatever you do. However, the big yield gap is in normal and good monsoon years. Uh, this well, is what we found. That's interesting. And that is because the farmers are not able to know ahead that I it's see. not going to be a drought. I see. And to them, the cost-benefit ratio of I putting see. in more fertilizer or investing in pesticides right. is favorable only if it is not a low rainfall year. Right. Otherwise, it's money down the drain. I mean, so it's not for lack of knowledge. Yes. But it is that we have not given them enough 
idea about the rainfall variability and, and prediction. And is it is it all individual farmer decisions that the issue? I mean, I, I've been I don't know much about agriculture in general or agriculture in India, but I I listened to an interesting uh, uh, podcast recently about it, and and my understanding from that is that. Indian agriculture is very, very tightly uh, controlled by government policy, much more than other sectors of the economy still. Is that still true? Is that a factor in any of this? Or it's all individual farmer decisions that are the issue? Unfortunately, it is also controlled a great deal by money lenders. Okay. Okay. Uh, most of the Indian farmers are poor. Yes. And they need money. Yes. And uh, I can tell you that even when we tell them that it is not worthwhile for you to grow groundnut, Mm. They will say, with the, unless we promise to grow groundnut, the moneylender won't give us money for the seeds because they get more profit from that. They don't care if the farmers don't make any money. I see. Once, several years. And same now, unfortunately, driven a great deal by pesticide and fertilizer industries. Mm, mm. So it has been a big movement recently to have organic farming. Yeah. Organic farming is cost-effective way of doing things mm -hmm. because you don't invest that much. So yeah. even if the rains fail, you I don't see. lose that much. Right. At the same time, you can gain a lot. Yeah. But it has taken a lot of time to propagate because of the influence of agricultural scientists who were brought up in green revolution, which yeah. occurred because they had different seeds and irrigation and lot of pesticides and fertilizers. When you do dry land agriculture, that is to say you depend on rain, mm -hmm. the, the, it has been a total failure, the Green Revolution. I see. Absolute failure. And even today, the impact on agriculture comes only through non-irrigated thing. But there is a limit to how much we can irrigate. Yeah. <laughs> and we have reached that limit. Yeah. So there are ways to influence the farmers. First is by conserving water by using more ecologically sound practices yeah. and so on. But that is not something in which I can contribute, I have realized. Sure, yeah. Therefore, I gave up. But I, the reason I worked out that impact was because I was curious to find out how much did it have any impact on GDP. Because the problem with economists is they're always comparing last year's with this year. <laughs> <laughs> See, they only have delta Y. In their uh, concentration. I see, yeah. uh, so they will say it is so much less than last year. Right. And you and did so a composite over good months. No, we and did everything. Monsoons. We did yeah. everything properly. Yeah. From nineteen fifty till two thousand three. All the data on GDP, on agriculture, on yeah, yeah. monsoon and so on. So that that gives a different feel. Yeah. So that is why I did it, because somebody had to know whether there is a genuine impact. Yeah. And you weren't uh, you weren't uh, you know afraid to go in the new field and deal with economic data and this kind of stuff, or agricultural data. See, nobody had done it. Somebody had to do it, and you well, know that, that takes confidence and and uh, you know. I guess my upbringing at Harvard MIT yeah. has led to that. I have never lacked confidence to address a new problem. I see that. At worst, you will fail, right? I agree with you, but some people never learn this. And I'll tell you, this problem we used to discuss at the dining table. Yeah. And my son, who turned out to be a brilliant mathematician, yeah. was staying with us at that time. He had not got married still. Yeah. He had come back from US yeah. huh, with a degree from Caltech. Mm -hmm. He had a job in Bangalore mm -hmm. and he was staying with us. And I used to tell him, 
this problem. Then I got GDP data. Mm -hmm. It was not easy those days to get. Huh? Now you can get it from the website. I had to work very hard to get the GDP data. I see. Then I got the agriculture data that was available. Yeah. And I had monsoon data. And we used to discuss this over the dining table. Uh -huh. And that is how we slowly got to figure out how to do things. Uh -huh. And so his is the second name on our paper. Okay. It's a paper with him. See, because he is very bright. Actually, even in the GRL paper on Equatorial Indian Ocean Oscillation, yeah. we had a problem uh, which was statistical, how to show the significance. Yeah. He devised his own method of doing it. What, what's his field in math or something? He's a mathematician. What He's a topologist, but he does all kinds of other things. Topologist who does statistics on economic data, okay. See, he was trained in the Indian he, he, Statistical Institute. Uh, he knows statistics, okay. Uh, no problem at all. And he, see, we had to show, you know, you remember our paper, we showed there is a clean line of separation yeah. between droughts and excess rainfall years. Yeah. in the plane of these two components, right? Yeah. And we had to show that it was significant. Yeah. It's not a trivial problem. Yeah. So he did it by ordered pair statistics. Yeah. He devised that method for this, and it got published in GRL. And I must say, Mark Cain was amazed. Well, amazed that he, he, such a method could be used. So he is a fourth author in that GRL paper, my son. See, everybody believed the result, but the point is we have only one realization in meteorology, right? Right, always. <laughs> so, yes. always. So how to show statistical significance is not trivial. And we, in fact, submitted it to an economic journal, yeah. not to a meteorological journal. Yeah. Because I wanted economists to be convinced. And were they? I think so. So you didn't have the same trouble that you did with agriculture? People. No, no, no. The economists were easier somehow. They realized that they should have done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that's think. good. I mean, that's good. I think. Sometimes when people have that realization, they become hostile. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, I have been very fortunate in having very good students. So many good students. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm excited about what I'm doing. Yeah. And I hope to write a book on monsoon some, one of these days. You should. From whatever I understand of yeah. it. We need a good book about that. We don't have one. Uh, but I think I have different perspective in some of these things. Of course. In fact, I'm looking forward to the next two, three years. Yes. Of sitting and consolidating what I know. Yes. And write it up. Please do. You should. So, uh, <laughs> so that is why I don't think of addressing other problems. Yeah, okay. Which may be equally important. I am very selfish, I suppose. I would like to do what I enjoy doing. And what I enjoy doing is trying to understand the system. Yeah. Okay. And it turns out to be useful, well and good. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I now I'm 75. Yeah. And you retired a few few years ago? Oh, I retired in 2006. Yeah, oh, 2006. But you're a very active retired person. Yeah. Unfortunately, I took charge of this monsoon mission yeah. committee. <laughs> What is, your, what is your position actually in the monsoon mission? See, monsoon mission has two committees looking at it. One is what we call SRMC, which is the Scientific Research and Monitoring Committee. Yeah. This is the committee in charge of soliciting proposals, getting them reviewed, yeah. and recommending decisions. Yes. 
and the higher committee is scientific steering committee ssc yes and that is the one that is responsible for actually recommending for funding and so on mm-hmm. so ours are only recommendation they are the ones who fund it yes but bulk of the work is done by srmc yes and i happen to be the chair of that i took it on because i felt that if you are serious about getting a new understanding of the monsoon and better prediction yeah. then you have to involve the best people yeah and my feeling is without understanding we'll never improve prediction yes and so we had to get people who are not just involved in prediction but yeah. who are concerned about oh, understanding well this is this is great but i mean so, you could have decided so, that it's not your problem but instead in retirement you're playing an important leadership role it's wonderful i mean can you say a few things about how the science scientific how science has changed over in this India. time in india anywhere but yes in india certainly i mean to in me india. now it seems we very... have made enormous strides yeah, in india yeah, yeah. and i am extremely happy about that yeah yeah when i first came here yeah i mean there were very few yeah top scientists yeah and they always had to work in spite of the system yeah huh as i mentioned sikka ananta krishnan they were good scientists even then yeah but now what has happened we have a whole generation of scientists yes uh, and we have good scientists in every field and some are trained overseas and, and some are at, trained look here look at our own center yeah we have expert in aerosols yeah we have js who is an expert in radiation monsoon modeling climate change yeah and uh, you know we have the first person to have uh, implemented an ocean model mom for the bay of bengal mm-hmm. he is on our faculty vinay yeah. whom you will hear yeah. so we have people yeah. who are really experts in all the important things yeah. this is all next generation yeah. these people were not there yeah. and before. All, all the modeling and the prediction all this is very state of the art very impressive these days I mean, it is uh, yeah. it is the, the forecasts are good the models are high resolution big ensemble big computer everything works i mean it's good it's all very impressive Can we talk a little bit more about climate change? It seems to me that like the monsoon it also is an important thing for India like the rest of the world. It seems to me that at least until recently it's relatively little studied here. I mean it's uh okay. it's now changing I think. Is that correct or Yeah, very true. I okay, my gut feeling is the following, huh? Yeah. That I believe 100% that we are causing global warming yeah. by the way we are behaving yeah and the wrong things that we are doing yeah. of that a lot has to do with land surface processes you know the denudation of forests yes. the way we are managing the whole thing yes and making urban heat islands yes and so on and so forth yes is contributing immensely to it yes i think as responsible citizens of the world yeah we ought to try and limit our emission of greenhouse gases sure and global warming yes that should be the major concern yes and the other thing is proper use of our resources yeah water particularly water yes, because yes. that is becoming a huge issue yes and that is because of reckless use of resources yes everywhere yes so the practices that are promoted yes in cities Yes. are simply not sustainable. Yes. No, way- not only in cities but in agriculture. I mean everywhere, right? In yeah. India has a water problem from groundwater pumping and from That's the uh, point. Yeah. Everywhere. So those are the major problems yes. of change of uh, climate for us. Yeah. Now problem is that people are obsessed with impact of climate change on things like monsoon. I see. Okay. 
Now, I personally think yeah. that monsoon has been very stable yeah. over 100 years. Yeah. You see changes on the decadal scale, yeah. but you have seen them from times immemorial, right. oh, from so you, whenever data is there. Yeah. Okay. I think that the major problem with handling the monsoon or living with a variable monsoon right. is not climate change. Right, I see. I think the major problem is to tune our agricultural practices right. for better utilization of soil, water, yes. and better utilization of our knowledge of variability I of see. rain, yeah. which we have is very robust for 100 years. So, so what you're saying is the scientific community in India is... Is, so, is concerned about global warming, but concerned about it not exactly for the right reason because they're overemphasizing its the effect on the monsoon. Huh. I have a paper written long ago on climate change and agriculture and Indian perspective. Just before that, a paper came out predicting that, you know, our crop yields and so on will decrease with climate change. Yeah. For which they had used crop models. Yeah. And they had used global warming data. And I showed that the present models, none of them show that the monsoon will change with global warming. Right. There is absolutely no relationship. But what about the direct effect of temperature? No, no. They were talking of rainfall, which okay. they put in the crop models. Right. Okay. And the crop models they used are not validated for anything. So you put two and two together and yeah, make yeah, 5,000 yeah. and scare people because the governments are, uh, act on that. Our models are no good in simulating the monsoon variation. Right, right. Therefore, yeah. my take-home lesson from climate change is, if extremes are going to become more frequent, yeah. we have to be better adapted to extremes than we are. Right. We have to do better water management for high rain, yeah. and we have to be better water management for droughts also. Yeah. But to me, the priority has to be given to making locally the environment much more sensible. Ecologically. Yeah, yeah. Ecologically. It's so complicated yeah. because industrial pollution, yeah. it is such a problem to try and solve it yeah. because of politics. Yeah. Okay? There are vested interests in keeping the factories going mm. and polluting everything. Our rivers are the most polluted in the world. Yeah, I know. And why is it? Because all the politicians have some vested interest in those factories yeah. and pollution control boards are made toothless yeah so this is the problem you know yeah that is why i have never really studied it in depth except for that one paper where i saw a lot of yeah. you know problems with the climate change assessments of impacts yeah. and they remain okay yeah and uh, so while i'm very clear that we have to cut down our emissions yeah <laughs> because we are after all one seventh of the world population yeah. We cannot be so irresponsible. Right. But at the same time, better first clean our environment also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to be that kind of no, an approach. Yeah, nobody can argue with that. Yeah. It has to be that kind and not go get on top of the climate change bandwagon and say everything we are doing is for climate change. That is no, all rubbish. I mean, it has to be both in some way. It has to be both with even, you know, importance given to both. Yeah. And right. nobody is really doing much about greenhouse gas emission cutting down. Right. As far as I can see in India. Well, I mean, historically, the argument in the international negotiations from, from India and China was that, you know, we shouldn't do anything about it because it's mainly the fault of, of the West so far, which was true. I mean, which was a fair argument to make. 
I mean, now it's becoming different because India is bigger and more, you know, has a bigger economy and more emissions, you know. Now. Even now they argue that the per capita emission is so much higher in US. Which is true. Uh, and what are we doing? We are going the same way. Yeah. In, they are grumbling so much that the car production has come down. Yeah. I said, thank God. Yeah. They say, no, 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 that's a sign of weakened economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see? Yeah. They're not buying cars, not because they think ecologically we have reached the limit, right. but because they don't have the money to spend. Yeah. You see? This is the problem. Yeah. Anyway, all I can say is that I have seen only progress in science in our country. See, I came back in 71. Yeah. So I've been here for a long time. Yeah. I've seen enormous progress, bright students. Yeah. Huh? Every generation has brighter and brighter students. Yeah. Good traditions have been set up. Yeah. And we are not so short of money. There are computers everywhere. Yeah. I only think we can do better. Yeah. And we should do better. Yeah. That is about all. But otherwise, I'm very hopeful. And we have a lot of young people who are, you know, followers of this Greta so on also. Yep. Doing a big thing about climate change, which I like. Yes. They're aware. I like it too. Huh. I I like that. They should be aware yeah. of what we are doing. Yeah. And there are lots of people working for ecology. Yeah. And so there is a lot of spirit. Yeah. And I think that our future is bright. It's a privilege to do what we do, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It is a privilege. And uh, I think we have created good institutions also. So it is a good thing we are doing. Good. That's why I said I have no regrets. I'm, I've enjoyed my life very much. But one hopes that one could have done a little more. Always. Always one hopes Always. That. Yeah. No, even for society and so on. But it's good to know your limits. Yeah. You can't be effective in areas in which you have no expertise. Yeah. So better to stick to what you are, yeah. some knowledge in. Excellent. Okay, yeah. It's been a long... Uh, I kept you a long time. No, that's okay. Okay. So, well, thank you for talking to me, Sulochana. Uh, you are very welcome. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me also. Okay. To walk down the memory lane. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Sulochana Gadgil says, the future is bright. But we can do better, and we should do better. She was talking about India, but maybe we could all benefit from that kind of positive outlook everywhere, even though for some of us it's a little hard to sustain these days sometimes. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Ham, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>